Dear Sir, in reply to a question put by one of our missionaries, we have written as follow. Thinking that perhaps you might have the same question asked you, we send the matter as written for your information. Where it becomes worthwhile to talk about inventions, you can say that to, as to the automatic that it is the invention of Thomas C. Johnson, who is one of our employees. Of course, the Winchester Company, as a company, cannot invent anything. The people who are employed for that purpose are the real inventors. For a number of years, it seemed best to us to employ the Mr. Browning Brothers. We bought everything which they invented, which had merit, whether we used it or not. It seemed to us that the end had become rather high-priced, and we let them go to Colts. They had got to feel that they were the only people who could invent guns, and that our suggestions to was, as to what was needed by the public were of no value, and that they were re really the whole thing. Mr. John Browning was a very nice man, and we were sorry to part with him because he was in many respects a genius. His younger brother, Mr. Matthew Browning, was a more difficult proposition. We understood that he was not the inventor, but that Mr. John Browning was the inventor. None of the things invented by them were made by us exactly as presented. They were all worked over by the people in our employ to get them into such shape that they could be manufactured successfully. For instance, the Model 1886 gun is more largely the invention of our Mr. Mason than it is of the Browning brothers. The Brownings have supplied us with the locking features only. We shall be perfectly able to get along without the Brownings, and shall probably be better off without them than with them. The 22 automatic is a sample. On the other hand, we do not believe that they will get along well without us, as they did with us. There is room for both. We should not like to have you say anything that would look as though we were inimicable, but if there is any suggestion of their claiming that they are the whole thing and there is nothing left, the 22 automatic gun is our answer, and we shall within a little while have other answers of the same kind to such argument. Yours respectfully, Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Thomas Bennett. Thomas Bennett. So, that was dramatic. That was very dramatic. Yes. And welcome to another episode of History Unloaded. With Danny and Ashley. Today's topic, we wanted to read what we call the Sour Grapes Letter, which is a letter from Thomas Bennett, who was the fourth president of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, or something like that. And we wanted to talk about the real gun designers of the Connecticut River Valley. So... Who are some of the real gun designers? Or actually, before we answer that, who are the <laughs> people in the so, letter? That was so structured. Like <laughs> You almost think we would plan this. We did not. But like we should probably point out first about the fact that it's the real gun designers of Connecticut River Valley. It's about drama. 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 And the people that were players in that letter, if you couldn't tell, uh, T.C. Johnson... But like he was just like, yo, don't mention me. I mean, yeah, like he, was, he was just name dropped. He kind of got dragged into it. Yeah, he got dragged into that. But um, Matthew and John Moses Browning. So there were a lot of gun designers in the Connecticut River Valley around the time that the Browning brothers were working. And they were off in Utah. I mean, lame, right? Um, and there was a lot of competition for these, you know, opportunities to work for these companies. There was a lot of competition with the companies themselves, and the designers played a really significant role in that. And so the Sour Grapes letter, Grapes letter, great, great grapes, the Sour Grapes letter was created or written by Bennett as kind of the breakup letter of, of Browning and Winchester because uh, basically Browning came out with his Winchester Model 1893, which is its own dramatic story. Um, 
involving blown up guns and a recall, but that was used um, in the implementation of the Winchester Model 1897 slide action shotgun. And right around the same time is when John Moses Browning designed his semi-automatic shotgun. And the deal that Browning and Winchester had struck back early on in their relationship was that basically that they would outright buy the long guns. <clears throat> he had uh, handguns, machine guns through other companies, but they would buy the long gun patents and then they would decide whether or not they were going to modify the market them, sell them. And when Browning, the story goes that when Browning got a hold of this, when he made this semi-automatic shotgun, he was like, oh, they're not going to sell this right away. So I want a new deal. Yeah, and that that arrangement sort of went all the way back to Browning's single-shot rifle that became the Winchester 1885. A salesman finds the Browning brothers working in Utah and writes back to the company, or at least the story goes, yeah. that, hey, they have this gun that I think we could sell, and they just offer them a lump sum. And that arrangement went for a while, um, but then we get into the turn of the century, and things aren't quite so rosy between the company and like you said, it really reads like a breakup letter, like a, you know, a jilted ex is... Yeah. You know, they call Matthew Browning a difficult proposition. Yeah. That's a great insult. I, I'm just like, you, sir, are a difficult proposition. That's a new... I'm going to use that. I don't know how why I haven't used that this yeah. far in my life. But it goes like, you know, Winchester says, we will be okay with... That's the part I love about this letter is Winchester's like, we will be okay without them. And then Winchester misses out on the A5 and 1911. Um, like, you know, well, and then they, like they say, like, you know, Browning won't do super well without us, but, you know, we'll do fine without them. And that's just funny because, like, Browning goes over to, like, Belgium and he's, like, basically, like, living the life until he dies. Yeah, Browning does. <laughs> Browning does just fine. Winchester actually gets in some pretty deep trouble by the end of World War One, And so they're struggling financially. So Well, the, and I love that the fact that they get the contract to make the VAR... Yeah. You know, and it's just like, ha, suck it. Yeah, and that's like a, you know, that's a dramatic Direct story. Direct quote from John Moses <laughs> <Yeah>. Browning. <laughs> well, that's like its own dramatic story because, so Browning leaves Winchester. He goes on to design other guns in the early 1900s. Uh, World War One breaks out. Um, he comes up with the BAR, the Browning Automatic Rifle. Uh, Colt owns the patents uh, to this now. And they start making it. The government says, we want more than you can make. You have to contract this out to other companies or you have to bring other companies in on this. Winchester gets selected to one of the companies. And so the U.S. government sort of like forces them to get back together. And Edwin Pugsley relates the story that one of the Winchester engineers had to go back hat in hand to John Moses Browning to get his help with the design. And they actually took a part of the BA. They didn't take like a whole gun, but they took a handguard that they were having trouble with and asked him for help. And I always imagine that scene is very dramatic. I don't know if it actually played or out Or humbling. Like yeah. Like massively humbling. Well, and the Browning story isn't the only dramatic story about gun manufacturing and gun designers in the Connecticut River Valley during this time period. Uh, my other favorite one is the William Mason revolver drama that goes on between Colt and Winchester. And basically... William Mason's one of the designers of the Colt Single Action Army, the Model 1873. And he works for a bunch of companies, but Winchester specifically hires him to make a revolver initially. I mean, Mason did lots of stuff. But yeah, they, they poached him from Colt yeah, to build a revolver. That looked like the Colt. And, you know, one of the reasons that they were doing that was that the competition was heating up between Winchester and Colt. And if let me see if I can remember correctly, you know, Colt 
was making double barrel shotguns or shotguns. So then Winchester started importing like English shotguns with the Winchester name. And then the real, you know, tete-a-tete moment was when Colt got a lever action patent and thought that they were going to get into the lever action market. And we'll talk about this after this story. You know, Winchester were some real bullies, man. They did not lay down on the job uh, when they felt threatened. And so they went and they were like, we need to get that William Mason guy. And they did. Yeah, they did. And he designed a revolver. And then the story the famous story that could be its own episode, really, but is that Winchester takes a revolver prototype to Colt and says, we're really having trouble with getting this design working. What do you guys think about it? And shortly thereafter, um, both sides drop their respective revolver and lever action rifle projects. Um, In a gentleman's agreement. Yeah, that is never recorded or written down anywhere, but always attested to. Someone says it's written down in the Colt records. I would love to see that. Me too. So if you know where those are, let us know. But that there's that gentleman's agreement between Colt and Winchester. And like I feel like Winchester like appears a lot in the drama scene, which might I don't know. I think it's more of a factor of for like for us, we ha since we have the Winchester archive, we see it show up more. But I think it's really this you know, somehow we think like the gun design world is sort of very sterile and free from these battles, but I think if we had other companies' archives and stuff, we would see it within all of them because, um, you know, I'm sure Bannerman had to go to bat a bunch of times, um, you know, ammunition companies. Uh, Bannerman was <laughs> went to bat with Winchester. Yeah. So. Um, my personal favorite <laughs> yes. drama story of, like, firearms design history. Spill the tea, Danny. <laughs> all right, we'll <laughs> dump it all over this thing. Um, is a guy named G.W. Morse. So Morse is a relative of the guy that invented the telegraph. Um, but he works as a firearm designer before the Civil War, and he actually comes up with a centerfire cartridge and breech loader that can convert old U.S. military flintlocks and percussion arms to a new centerfire breech loading gun in the 1850s, which is kind of remarkable when you think about the actual timeline of when those things become popular. Um, and the then Secretary of War, Jeff Davis, um, yeah, just Jeff. Just Jeff. We're on first. Yes. I shouldn't be on first name terms with him, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyways, Secretary Davis and he come to an agreement. So he gets a contract to convert 2,000 guns as a trial um, for breech-loading arms, but it gets canceled by the outbreak of the Civil War. They only have made like 50 guns. They've run out of money. Um, so Morris, who um, he takes his design work to the Confederacy and works in several Confederate armories. He builds the Morse carbine, which is a breech-loading metallic cartridge, centerfire metallic cartridge carbine, uh, builds a thousand of those for the state of South Carolina. They may or may not see combat. Um, and then after the war, he sues the government that he just rebelled against <laughs> for infringing on his patent for breech-loaders because the North has bought so many metallic cartridge breech loading firearms he's like i patented that concept before the war you owe me royalties and at first they're like uh we don't know what you're talking about you did no such thing we didn't do any such thing like they just stonewall him eventually he gets a small settlement um and then by the 1880s he's working for the ordnance department again designing cartridges like that is blows my mind oh you know what's another good one What's Roland that? White. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A disgrace to the union. <laughs> <laughs> so Roland White was a designer that worked for Colt. He worked for Colt, um, and he came up with this really cool uh, 
ability and design to basically load a revolver from the rear of the cylinder. Now, before that, you had to kind of do it from the front of the cylinder. It was incredibly obnoxious. And the story goes is that Roland White went to Colt, Samuel Colt, like, what year is this? Is he dead? I can't remember. Uh, 1850s. <laughs> yeah, he's still alive. Yeah. Um, and he goes to Samuel Colt, and um, and he basically, you know, is like, look at this thing that I've made. And Colt's like, shove off, man. I'm Sam going- Colt, and I'm a real jerk. <laughs> <laughs> that is a 100% accurate quote. Yeah. That's how I like to think things go down. So Roland White, like, literally, like, leaves Colt and takes his patent and he proposes it to Smith and Wesson, who go, well, this is pretty awesome. Like, let's do this because Colt's patent's going to expire. And, you know, let's let's make this new revolver that has kind of a brake action so you can load it a lot faster than Colt. And we have a leg up on the competition. But we're not going to, you know, oh, gosh, it's we're not going to do do it outright. So it's a royalty, is it right. not? They, yeah. they make him remain as the patent holder. That's so it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they get the rights to make these things, but then he has to spend all the money to defend them. them. And what happens? The war breaks out. <laughs> yeah, and he gets so many people that he's so busy defending his patent. In the middle of a war. That he goes broke. But Smith and Wesson are still making money off of the design. They're like, like just... they're like fool, fool. <laughs> yeah. But then after the war, he does get a patent extension mm-hmm. because he basically claims hardship um, and like doesn't make any money again. And so when he comes back, he's like, "No, poor me." And President Grant calls him basically an embarrassment to the union because he bogged down all of these companies in lawsuits and litigation to defend his patent during a time of war. And like, you know, basically he's not a team player. And that's a really good one. Yeah, that one's kind of, that one makes me feel bad. It's like he spends so much time defending his yeah. prop, like his intellectual idea. And then um, everybody just like, dude, you kind of suck. <laughs> well, but I mean, they did give him an extension yeah. like to do better and he didn't. And he also like, I don't know, that's that's your own fault for not for striking that deal with Smith and Wesson. Yeah, and that I think they obviously Good job, the, Horace and Daniel. The, Good job. The better end of the deal because by the end of the Civil War, they're off as a successful company selling a whole lot of revolvers. Yeah. Um, anything Sam Colt related is dramatic. I mean, he gets caught before right before the Civil War sending guns rather suspiciously southward. Yes. Um, and then dies. <laughs> not because of that. No. Oh, yeah. That, was, that I mean, did sound related. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, he gets caught um, selling guns to both the North and the South. But he's able to prove that it was all before the war broke out, I believe. Um, but it didn't matter. The yeah. court of public opinion is not a pretty one. But yes, then he dies. Then he dies. And, you know, it's really Elizabeth Colt that makes him out to be the man, the myth, the legend, Samuel Colt. I don't think she sounded that Southern. Was that Southern? I don't know. You put a drawl in there, and I oh. just called it Southern. People are going to be like, that's not Southern. This is oh. Southern. I, I was doing like a Samuel Colt. Oh, gotcha. Like yeah. More like a high school cheer. Yeah. Uh, what else? I, I, I know we're missing a couple of the good ones. Well, Bannerman. And the Bannerman lawsuit, where Bannerman buys up the Christopher Spencer shotgun patent and then um, goes after Winchester. And Winchester, in one of my, like, the greatest, like, corporate we're not going to take this moment. We're not going to take it. Thank you. They s- No, we ain't going to take it. <laughs> they send their salesmen out around the world to find every related slide action patent that they can. Um, and then 
immediately have to start working on fixes to the gun after they win the lawsuit because it's still blowing up. Well, and then they were like, but can we shoot it <laughs> in court? <laughs> yeah, and T.C. Johnson mentioned in the letter actually offered to shoot it in court in front of the judge, and the judge had to be like, no, that's that's okay. I get it. <laughs> chill, fam. Okay. <laughs> yeah, chill. <laughs> well, and then Winchester, you know, they basically like swallow up all of these companies, like, mm-hmm. you know, when they start getting successful, Evans. Yeah. Um, Adirondack. But, Adirondack. But, you know, what's funny is that like they kind of like, they kind of are like a vulture, you know, they're like, they circle these places until they can, you know, basically bleed them dry and buy them and, you know, use whatever was valuable mm-hmm. in it. But then it happens to Winchester yeah. with Olin. Yeah, eventually it, it gets Winchester because after all these years of buying companies and gun companies and knife makers and fishing good makers, like by the end, they get bought out by an ammunition maker in Olin Industries. Yeah. Oh, hey, Danny. Hey, Ashley. Have you heard the hot gossip about that crazy lady, Sarah Winchester? You know, I think I have heard some weird, weird stories about her. <laughs> I wish you could see the face he was making while he did that. It did not go great. Sarah Winchester, like the ultimate, yeah. like socialite gossip story that starts during her lifetime and it doesn't start during the in the connecticut river valley but it's basically the story that you know she loses her husband and un, an unborn child it was her child the child was born you don't know where you're going i don't know where i was going with that that's just a rumor i started uh <laughs> i think i'm getting liver eating johnson mixed up um and she, you know, decides to move out to California. But the story goes that she met with a prominent medium and that the medium said, you are being haunted by people killed by Winchester rifles. You know, those, those target rifles. Yeah, those <laughs> yeah, ones. Those ones. Um, but, I mean, obviously Winchester's reused and things other than target right. shooting. But, you know, and that you have to build this crazy-ass house in San Jose, California and, like, listen to the spirits and the spirits will tell you what to do. And so she goes out to California and builds a crazy-ass house. And that uh, Walt Disney went and visited the house mm-hmm. and it inspired the concept behind the Haunted Mansion. Uh, but none of it's true. Yeah, it's all, like, this... It's this great story. I mean, it's got all the elements that we love. Um, you know, this this heiress to who really would be one of the richest women in U.S. history. If not, like, the richest woman. Um, she's, like, and there's just a ton of mystery surrounding her. But it turns out, you know, she didn't actually have builders there 24-7. You know, she spent was, more time outside of the house than yeah, inside the house. There was significant damage to the hell, to the house that they... <laughs> the, the hell house. <laughs> the, to the house um, after the 1906 earthquake that they just sort of walled off things. And she had been trapped for a while in yeah. one of the rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, so that created some things. There was the existing house that she purchased that built around. So that creates some weird architectural stuff. She but... was tiny and had arthritis and needed little steps. Yeah, so all these things add up into this really bizarre house. And then, and then uh, the neighbors started talking. <laughs> yeah, and then the family that buys it after her death, you know, they see the opportunity to sort of spin the tall tale and make some money and are very good at it. Yes, and it's not true that all she wanted to make were roller skates that inspired the roller skates that Winchester made. That was made up by the Helen Mirren movie. At least I think it was. I couldn't make it through like more than 15 <laughs> minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah, they were. They did that one on their own. Yeah, they did lots of stuff on their own. But you that's know, one of the, probably the greatest. You know which one we should really be embarrassed that we've missed so far? What's that? Given our collection. Winchester v. Henry, 1865. Ooh. It was never actually a lawsuit. So yeah, I know. The v. I Henry like, is not a thing. But when Henry feels that he has not been compensated enough yes. for his work on the Henry that brought New Haven Arms so much success, and he 
depending on whose side of the story you believe, Henry tries to take over the company while Winchester's on a trip. Winchester catches wind of it, manages to wrest control of the board back from Henry, solidifies his name and the company, kicks Henry out. Henry die, you know, Henry goes on to do some minor firearms things, and then I think he dies later in the 1800s, uh, late 1800s. Sort yeah, nobody of, cared by then. He was nobody relevant. like sort of unrecognized. Uh, and Winchester becomes the name we know as a lever-action rifle. Yes, that is a good one. I always used to say that on tours that H- Henry got uppity. Henry <laughs> got uppity. So you took you took OFW side on this. <laughs> uppity Henry. Um, yeah. Right. I don't know. Maybe I'm just looking out for Fisher. I I guess so. Good good reference. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so. Gun history is incredibly dramatic, and that's just looking really at the late 19th, early 20th century, but I'm sure if you expand it out, you can get some really interesting, juicy uh, tidbits of gossip throughout gun history. Uh, oh, but my personal favorite little beef was, in a modern sense, was when SIG was having that problem with their dropping of the guns, mm-hmm. and Glock made that social media post, before you drop your SIG, pick up a Glock. Yeah, that was pretty epic i feel like that's a good note to end on yeah i think so yeah so thanks for listening guys we hope you enjoy it and uh, let us know what you want to hear a little more about and we'll uh, talk to you next time yeah talk to you later